Good morning. I'd like to thank Reverend Nika for inviting me to be with you today and thank all of you um, and the ministers from these other congregations who have decided to allow me the opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. I titled this talk, Solidarity and Racial Justice. How do we stand together if we're not all together? Because events of the last few years have pushed us to take a stand. Religious leaders from various faiths and activists across the nation have called for a renewed sense of moral clarity. They ask us to stand firm on the side of love, on the side of what's right, humane, and just. We've had to take a stand against children in cages and a Muslim ban and toxic masculinity, gun violence, climate change denial, neo-Nazis, and police violence against Black people. There are a lot of people with a lot of clarity. Protesters have put their bodies on the line. And on each issue, we must consider how will future generations judge us? Imagine yourself years in the future being asked, where were you when people took to the streets to defend Black life? What did you do about police violence? What did you do in the fight against white supremacy? Like many people, I hope that had I been alive during the time of slavery, that I would have had the heart and the courage to stand on the side of the abolitionists, that I would have been strong enough to take direct action. The correct response seems clear and straightforward. I recall the slogans I heard so often as a kid growing up in the 1980s, just do it or just say no, depending on the issue. Nike and Nancy Reagan were the voices of my youth. Maybe it's because of that, that I have a visceral reaction when I hear explicit calls to take action. I want to be there. My inner voice says, just do it. From a moral perspective, it's that simple, isn't it? I remember watching a documentary about a climate activist from Portland a while back. There was a scene of him standing in front of an ExxonMobil gas station with a sign. In the scene, he's all by himself in the middle of the night, talking to the few motorists who were there filling up their tanks. He's taking action in response to the news that Exxon's own scientists knew about climate change. And at the same time, they were lying for years. So here's this man all by himself, with a sign shaming the company, just trying to get some reaction from those around him. Eventually, he got the manager's reaction, who called the police, who then asked him to move off of their private property. And when he refused to move, he got arrested. And then, just a few days later, he showed up, did the same thing again. It was around Christmas, and so this time, he showed up wearing a Santa suit hanging stockings filled with coal on the gas pumps. The documentary goes on to show him engaged in more direct actions, actions that break federal law. He ultimately joined with others in a coordinated effort to break into and shut down the various oil pipelines across multiple states to stop oil coming in from Canada. These activists knew they'd be arrested and prosecuted. As I watched this film, I found myself feeling two ways. I felt grateful that people like him are willing to take that kind of stand. 
And I also felt a little unnerved, wondering what it meant that I was still questioning their tactics. Have you ever had an experience like that where you felt supportive of something in spirit, but critical of the implementation? In my own anti-racism practice, I don't always agree with the ideas or the actions proposed by my own group or our solidarity partners. Each time I ask myself, what's at the root of my resistance? Is it a reflection of my privilege? Is it okay that my perspective diverges from what's become a loud collective call from activists? What does it mean if I feel somewhat distanced from them? Have you ever felt torn in a similar way? All of this has made me wonder, how do we come together if many of us want to be supportive and continue to stand at a distance? And by we, at this moment, I'm talking about those of us who care about justice, the enough of us that Biden referred to in his inaugural address, who are necessary to push racial justice forward. Is it possible for enough of us to stand together in a way that could allow us to bring about something truly transformational? I'm asking this question because I've found myself conflicted. Over the last several years, I've watched some of my closest friends in anti-racism develop ideas that I question. Their analysis of social change movements has expanded, and with it, there's been a change in their focus and articulation of what it means to fight for racial justice. To be specific, I'm talking about a bunch of 20 and 30-somethings and a bunch of retirees. Some of them were part of shutting down the 405 freeway along with the LMLA. They protested in front of the former district attorney's office week after week for years, along with the family members of people who were killed by police. Their experiences and the relationships that have formed have led to a full-throated commitment to defunding and abolishing both the police as well as all prisons. Throughout this time, I felt some inner resistance. Did believing that Black Lives Matter mean that I had to become a police and prison abolitionist? Made me question my own moral clarity. Am, am I not sufficiently anti-racist? When do you, what do you do when people you respect, who you believe are working for the same ultimate goal, advocate for strategies or positions that lead you to feel a bit distanced from them? Have you ever experienced anything like this? How do you stay in relationship? How do you stand in solidarity with someone when you feel conflicted? My first reaction was to be honest about my concerns. I questioned the practicality of it all. What would it mean to have no police, no place to keep dangerous people away from society? And I've done this work long enough to realize that when I start to feel a sense of immovability, um, assuredness, uh, when objectives come really quickly, there's usually something I'm missing. So standing to form is often an indication that I'm stuck in my whiteness and I need to stretch. So I went to a number of meetings that pushed me out of my comfort zone. One was highly critical of nonviolent civil disobedience as practiced in the 1960s. 
Far from anything I'd ever heard before, this workshop asserted that the approaches that were used in the 1960s depended upon a type of respectability politics that allowed justice to be granted only for those who continue to play by the rules of white supremacy. This was also linked to an argument that immigration reform proposals that don't allow immigrants of all backgrounds um, and uh, you know, um, elements to deny them a path to citizenship, that those reform efforts are not worth supporting. And the rationale is that due to racial profiling, the criminalization of youth of color in urban cities and the lack of justice in our systems, that even immigrants with criminal records should be included in a pathway to citizenship. The result of this stance is that any political agreement that supports only a segment of the immigrant population, like the dreamers, it's not sufficiently inclusive. I attended another meeting where a presentation criticized activists throughout our history who advocated for a moderate or reformist agenda deeming them more problematic than useful. All of this was happening a couple of years ago and it coincided with me hearing a number of influential black folks telling white people that liberal white people are far more dangerous to black indigenous and other peoples of color than far right white supremacists. This was just at the time in, 19, in uh, 2018, where I was focused a, focusing a lot of my energy on the alt-right. I had started giving presentations about the recruitment strategies of white nationalists. And it concerned me to think that white people were being discouraged from paying attention to what I perceived as a major threat. I kept attending these meetings though, and one of them focused on the details of the Black Lives Matter platform. And it called for defunding and abolishing the police, rerouting the money toward community services. The workshop included a presentation highlighting a community in another country that has no police, but instead relies on community members to respond to one another using restorative justice practices. They handed out an eight page history of policing that detailed policing's racist roots. All of this preceded the uprising last summer and the widespread calls to defund the police in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Just as many people felt stretched this past summer, at each of these meetings, I felt stretched. During each, I caught a glimpse of why my closest allies were shifting to a more radical position. Not only were they more proximal, closer to the consequences of police violence because of their connections to the victim's families, they had also been studying a history that I did not know. Their analysis had connected dots in ways that didn't make sense unless you were actually familiar with all of those dots. The radical vision of liberation and cultural transformation underlying their strategies became clearer and more understandable. As the daughter of a retired police officer, I can state unequivocally that the police abolition movement rests on a beautiful vision. The arguments for it are compelling and stretching myself during the last few years is what prepared me to have some really difficult conversations with my dad last summer about the need to defund, if not completely abolish the police. 
all of this has been true, while I have continued to question practicality, while I've focused most of my energy elsewhere, is it correct to say that I'm standing in solidarity if I'm not fully convinced that it would be wise to abolish the police entirely in the near future? If I continue to focus my attention on disrupting far-right extremists, how can we stand together if we're not all together? Two essential realizations have helped me break through some of this confusion. The first is that there's a difference between how I choose to participate and how I judge other people's actions. My initial reaction had confused the two. So I wanna make sure this is clear, so I wanna say it again. My primary confusion, the one that has eaten at me, has been about how I choose to participate, not about how others are taking action. What I realize is that my solidarity is in recognizing that there is no need for me to criticize the strategies of those fighting for their own liberation, or for that matter, those who are fighting in solidarity with them. It's not helpful. Just because I don't join all of their actions doesn't mean I'm going to act like those white moderates from the civil right era who actively criticized and worked against the radicals of their time. In fact, being in solidarity means trying to limit that kind of division. I say this because I've become convinced that whatever progress we've made over the centuries in the US, it would not have happened without the radicals and their vision, their fight, the controversy they stirred up, and the resulting calls for people to take the stand, to take a side. This has prompted me to find a more stable stance for myself, one that is solid enough to hold the tensions that remain. I've accepted that there is truth within the radical position that calls for police abolition. That truth prompted me to lend my voice where I could authentically provide it, like going and doing deep canvassing work a year ago in support of Measure R in Los Angeles, which stopped the funding of new jails in LA County and increased the oversight of the Sheriff's Department. At the same time though, the majority of my focus went toward presenting warnings about the dangers of the far right. Both need attention. What helped me resolve my inner conflict has been a shift of mind. It's from one that sees the world through a lens of either or to one of both and. This is more than just an idea. This is a way of walking through life. It's what's allowed me to recognize that because I stretched myself to understand the radical position, an important role I can play is helping other people to stretch. Joining the deep canvassing effort is what allowed me to help other moderate voices in my community find value in shifting our funding priorities, even if it didn't move them all the way to police abolition. A friend of mine, upon hearing a draft of this message I'm giving to you today, actually started laughing at me. Um, she said, you know, what's hilarious is that not only did you react to your confusion by going to learn about the radical position, which you still have trouble accepting as realistic path sometimes. Um, but you wrote a curriculum to help other people understand it too. And that's true. I did do that. Um, one of the workshops that my co-facilitator and I will offer next month during the four-part series focused on witnessing whiteness and developing an anti-racist practice, well, it did develop out of this process. 
And I say all of that because even while my efforts do not rise to the level of what Black Lives Matter Los Angeles calls white people to do, I am creating a place for myself as a bridge between the radical and the moderate perspective. This means that I'm anchoring myself in language that my moderate white community is likely to hear, even if it won't satisfy those with a radical vision. This straddling with one foot in the radical position and one oriented toward the moderate, I mean, it feels solid for me. It helps me to hold the tension in a stance that anchors to both a commitment to stand in solidarity and a dedication to my authentic truth. Have you ever experienced something like this, holding this kind of tension? Today, with the multiple ongoing crises our nation faces, all of us are asked to take a stand and to act in solidarity with those who are most impacted and most marginalized. We're called to a sense of moral clarity. We're called to support those who tell us what they need for their liberation. So what will you do? <laughs> How will you humble yourself in the service of listening to the radical? How will you take your stand in solidarity with those who seek to transform our society? How will you contribute to the work of justice? My personal answer is to assert that we can stand in the position of yes. Yes to the radicals who protest and call for police abolition. Yes to the frustrated and vehement activists who disrupt LA police commission meetings. Yes to Antifa, who regularly docks the Nazis, exposing their real names to their employers, making their commitment to hate consequential for their lives. Holding a position of both and allows us to say yes to it all. And then we have to ask ourselves, what more can we do? If we have a sense of moral clarity, how can we stand for love and justice in a way that bridges our own divisions to connect all of us? We will need to develop this capacity to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Disagreements are gonna remain. The tugs from different positions will continue. The chasm that exists between radical and moderate political positions hasn't fundamentally changed over decades. Critiques and judgments about where it is best for us to put our bodies will continue. And in the midst of it all, we can stand together we can each strive to recognize the value of multiple truths and multiple pathways. We can become bridge builders that can help people in our spheres of influence appreciate those who are standing in different positions, doing different work. We can be purveyors of the deepest level of empathy that we can imagine. My friends at All Souls Church in Tulsa have used the phrase love beyond belief to capture the orientation. And just as many UU congregations work to love one another beyond any individual's personal belief system, so too can we love and support one another across our political positions. In fact, we must. If we can harness the power of a both-and mindset, we will be able to stay engaged with those in our community who don't yet even recognize the need to act and the activist who claims that there's only one right way and the skeptic who views the world through a very different lens. Imagine with me that there's a racial justice freeway. On it are many different lanes, many ways to take action. Everyone on that freeway is valuable. 
We can support one another, regardless of which lane we occupy. And because the view looks different from the different lanes, you stay humble, ask questions, learn why people are moving as they are, so we can avoid running into each other, causing accidents, creating traffic jams. We also need as many on-ramps as possible. And with that, we uplift the value of the important work that goes on in the slow lane. The slow lane is where people new to these ideas first merge into the work. Supportive guidance and understanding helps people get along in there. It's from this position that we can explain what goes on in the faster lanes and why, reducing confusion and division. And that in and of itself is a valuable contribution. So I ask you, are you on the freeway? What lane are you in? My friends have called me a driver's ed teacher. <laughs> I hang out in the slow lane a lot. I try to uh, create on-ramps and I try to dissuade people from heading for the exits when things get difficult, jammed up. I mean, accidents happen, it's expected. Now, obviously this metaphor can go on and on. Uh, what I wanna highlight is that holding this image of the freeway requires a both and mindset. The strategies for navigating the fast lane are valuable, and so are those that support people in the slow lane. Staying in relationship while we hold these multiple truths will allow us to have the moral clarity we need to choose love, the courage we need to navigate disagreements while staying in relationship, and the empathy we need to build collective strength. And with this, we can stand in solidarity even while we feel distanced from one another. I'll conclude with one more question. Wherever you have been on your life's journey, will you join me on the racial justice freeway? Chalice has asked me to lead the four-part the four workshop series. Um, it's Thursday nights in April, starting on the 1st. It's designed for those of us who identify as white to consider what it means to witness our own whiteness, to live in the tensions that come with working toward an effective anti-racist practice. It's about us growing together, using the both and to engage in difficult conversations and in doing so advancing our own skills as well as bringing along others with us on the racial justice freeway. Compassion, empathy, and love. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to this message today. And it's been a real honor to be with you. Thank you.